3: Welcome to Forum, I'm Leslie McClurg. That pit in your stomach you feel as you're reading about the latest wildfire, hurricane, or flood? It has a name, eco-anxiety. This summer, it has been hard to shake a sense of doom. We'll talk about what to do with the angst or overwhelm you may be feeling about climate change. We'll get some advice on how to put the emotion into action. We'll also hear about some of the promising ways the planet could heal. Our panel of guests will leave you hopeful That's all next on Forum after this news. I'm Leslie McClurg filling in for Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Communities socked in by smoke, heavy rain filling basement apartments, temperatures so hot, sea animals boiled in the ocean. Given this year of extreme weather, fire, and heat, it's no wonder that eco-anxiety or climate dread have entered our vernacular. But they're more than just catchphrases. Climate-induced anxiety is a real set of emotions that can require attention and treatment and for some, those emotions are, luckily, a call to action. This hour, we're talking about climate anxiety and the climate solutions it's helping to foster. We're joined by three great guests, uh, Dr. Lisa Van Sustren, She's the founding member of the Climate Psychiatry Alliance. Paul Hawken, he's an environmentalist, entrepreneur, and the author of the forthcoming book, Regeneration, which comes out on September 14th. And Bina Venkatraman, she's the editorial page editor for the Boston Globe and author of The Optimist Telescope thinking ahead in a reckless age. Thank you all so much for joining us. I'd love to just do a quick kind of roundtable. I'd love to know how each of you are feeling or making sense of kind of this, this summer of doom, in my opinion. I mean, I know there's been a lot of great things that have happened this summer, but it's been hard to watch the headlines and the videos and the footage from all of these disasters. Paul, how are you feeling?
0: Uh, what a good question. i um, <clears throat> I'm a native Californian fifth generation. So I used to um, live in the Sierra Nevadas when I was a teenager and we fought fires. Um, it was what you did every summer and they were very doable. You knew how to do it. And, you know, and today when I, today of this year and last year and the year before, but I mean, the fires now are so different and and what's different is the dryness and the wind. Those two things together have created fires that we can't put out. And so I have to say, I feel a lot of grief. Um, When I try to explain to friends in Europe, I say that we were France and now we're going to become Spain. (laughs) In the sense, there's a a regime change, you know, we're never going to go back to where we were. And um, one of the things that we've experienced this summer in the world is the hottest summer ever uh, in his- recorded history, and it's difficult to also say that this will probably be the coldest summer we ever experienced for the rest of our life.
3: Hmm. Whoa! <laughs> what do you mean by that? Give me. What, what do you mean by the coldest summer we will? Oh, you mean in terms of the emotion?
0: No, because it's going to get hotter and hotter and hotter. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, that's just in the math. That's just in the projections. That's just the IPCC. I mean, we know that's true. Um, And so rather than seeing this as sort of, you know, a a one of or, you know, a series of unlikely or, you know, events that, you, you know, that we don't want to see happen again, you know, the fact is it's going to get warmer and warmer and warmer. And um, for at least thirty, thirty-five years, and so we have to be prepared for that. So eco anxiety it makes total sense given where we are.
3: This last, I'm actually from Lake Tahoe, and so this fire now, the Candor Fire in in Tahoe, I just you know, I watch the headlines or I watch the footage. And it's almost this overwhelming sense of grief. Like, I don't really know what to do with it, which is what we're going to talk about this hour. But Lisa, I'm curious, you know, have you been personally hit by any of these disasters or or how are you making sense of this summer?
4: Well, uh, first of all, it's wonderful to be with you all. And it it gave me sort of a smile to have somebody as a psychiatrist to have somebody ask me how I was feeling about something. (laughs) Um, But I'll say that uh, this summer, the the highs have been higher and the lows have been lower. And it's been characteristic of me over these years, uh, which is now about two decades of battling with climate awareness to have a, a very moody sort of disposition and to try to keep it from Uh, from other people, because you don't want to infect them. On the other hand, you want them to be more aware. And I say higher highs, lower lows, because, uh, and I'll start first of all with the obvious, which is that, my God, we're breaking records uh, in terms of temperature by as many as 10 degrees. Our averages are 25 to 50 above normal. uh, We're literally cooking ourselves to death. And um, as a psychiatrist, you know, my job is to get people to be aware of their dangerous behaviors and to change them in time, both for themselves, of course, for their families and for their communities. And sometimes as hard as you work, it feels so paltry compared to the problem. But, and this is when I get in a good mood, when I look around There is just an explosion of interest in this topic. Now, certainly activists over the years have, uh, well, I won't say tilled the field because tilling fields is bad, uh, but they have prepared the fields so that people can uh, understand uh, this problem. But the reality is that Mother Nature has now boosted us into a new domain where she is telling us, you know, your denial is not going to work. So I am very excited when I see young people, uh, oh, so many of them, doing studies in environmental science. Uh, people looking at how to improve and and get communities to transition to renewable energy. When I look at policies that are now being discussed and before used to talk about these things, I could shut a dinner party down just by bringing it up. And now people are talking about it. And, you know, just as there are climate tip, just as there are, yeah, climate tipping points there are social tipping points when all of a okay. sudden something happens faster than you ever could have imagined. Just
3: kind of jolting us awake, I think is how, at least how I'm personally feeling. This is not something that's gonna happen in 20 or 50 years. It's happening now and in a pretty, you know, painful or visceral way. Bina, I'm curious for you, how are you making sense of the summer?
5: Well, like Paul and Lee's, I I do feel this sense of unfathomable loss, you know, just looking at the forest uh, burning. Uh, I've been here on the East Coast where we've been experiencing heat waves. I'm based uh, in Boston. Uh, Having a sense both of what we're losing now, uh, but also a sense of dread about what more we will lose. And, And I think, you know, you could have been expecting this. And many of us who've been looking at the climate predictions for decades, Have been expecting this. This is not a surprise, uh, but still feel the sort of sense of grief of what we're missing, of the places we love, and our connection to that. But I have to say that that's also been, um, to some degree, counterbalanced by um, a sense of, I guess, the precious precarity of the natural world and our relationship to it. I am an open water swimmer, and on some of the hottest days of this summer, I've been out in Walden Pond, where Henry David Thoreau famously went to live more deliberately in the 19th century. And there have been more swimmers there than in summers past. And part of that's, of course, the pandemic. Uh, But I think that there are more people seeking out wild places, seeking places to cool off, connecting with these uh, beautiful waterways. And uh, it comes comes all of a piece. There's so, so many emotions tied together. And and we're experiencing it uh, sort of as one. And I, I keep coming back to, we're thinking of that Adam uh, Zagajewski poem, try to praise the mutilated world. And um, finding these moments of just tremendous gratitude for the flowering plant, uh, the vine that's growing on, on the pergola and uh, for those connections we can have with the natural world, despite what's happening.
3: I have definitely noticed, you know, being here in San Francisco each day that it is, you know, a blue sky or my, you know, air filters tell me it's it's safe to breathe and I don't have the sense that I need to run, that I'm grateful. Like there's a certain gratitude in the, in the moments that the natural world is giving us that I kind of took for granted in the past. But Lisa, I would love to get your kind of advice in a very different moment that I experienced. So last year, when the fires were just horrific at this time of year, my husband and my daughter and I, who was one at the time, we fled the city and and drove towards what we thought would be cleaner air in Northern California. And as we were driving, we were going through, you know, really horrific smoke. We couldn't see the car in front of us. And I had this, my pulse went up and I had this kind of fight or flight internal reaction to the smoke. And I was just like, I must get to safe territory. Must save my family, and I think it's like almost still in my body. There's still like this must flee, must must find something safe for for my family and especially for my daughter. I'm wondering how you would counsel someone like me. Clearly, that's eco anxiety. But but where do I start with that kind of ah?
4: Well, the first thing I think to do is probably name it. This is a version of post traumatic stress disorder. You're not consumed by the fears. But nonetheless, uh, this is a a post-traumatic event, Uh, and it dovetails with what you know about the future, which is why I called something a pre-traumatic stress, which is what I've been suffering from. So what you have is a conflation of both of these conditions. So how do you deal with something like this? Uh, So as I say, name it. Uh, And then in general, with climate anxiety or or climate trauma, which so many of us are suffering from, I I always say it in seven words, own it, master it, act on it. Own it, meaning that you understand now that you do have this anxiety, that it is causing you to want to flee and you have this survival mode in you. And I say master, because if we go through all of the actions that we can take, that sense of empowerment can use can be a springboard to acting on it. And we can act on it in so many different ways. I'm not gonna talk about it right here unless you ask me, but of course, Paul could tell you a million ways, but I think of it as personal, professional, and political. And we can work uh, in, in um, accordance with our strengths and with our demographics and where we are to make sure that we're the enlightened citizenry that gets us where we need to be to safety. Why is it important to feel the feelings, the first step? Are you asking? You're asking me. I'm asking you. Yeah. All right. So here's what people don't always understand. In those feelings, there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of power. Fear. My God, you know what people can do. They'll rush into a burning building because they're afraid a child is going to be harmed. They'll lift up cars. There is so much energy embedded in fear. It is imperative that we understand that there's energy there and that we capitalize on it because we can take that energy and the from that fear and ask yourself what lowers it action so awesome. and
3: we're going to talk about those actions in just a second we just have to go to a break here quickly stay with us we are going to talk to about solutions We're talking about climate anxiety and what to do with those feelings with Paul Hawken. He's an environmentalist, entrepreneur, and author of the forthcoming book, Regeneration, which comes out on September 14th. Dr. Lisa Van Susteren, she's the founding member of the Climate Psychiatry Alliance. And Bina Venkatraman, she's the editorial page editor for the Boston Globe, and she's the author of The Optimist Telescope, Thinking Ahead in a Reckless Age. And we want to hear from you. How are you feeling about the state of climate change? What helps you stay positive? Have you funneled your anxiety into action? Tell us about it. Give us a call at 1-866-733-6786. That's 1-866-733-6786. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Well, before the break, Lisa... Pointed out that it's important to feel the feels, get to that grief, and then put that grief into action. So, Paul, I want to turn to you. Where does someone start? So they've they're ready. You know, we've I've, I've dealt with my my smoke. You know, PTSD, and I'm ready to do something about the world. Where's the first place that you recommend someone starting?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a question I get all the time. Or the other variation of the question is, "What is the most important thing I can do?" You know, what's the number one, uh, you know, action that I can take? And um, it's a great question; it's an understandable one. Probably the most important thing that people can do is actually um, discover where they live. People don't know where they are. I mean, it sounds so orthogonal, you know, uh, remote from the pressing, you know, crisis at hand. Um, but we see climate and we have been writing about it and certainly uh, in headlines uh, as an it, as something that's out there somewhere. Like uh, we've othered it in the same way we've othered people and cultures and religions and women. This is othering language. And so in so doing, what we have Don is dissociate human beings from the biosphere. And we have also dissociated the atmosphere from the biosphere. And they're the same thing. They're exactly the same thing, just different aspects and manifestations of it. And so when I say find out where you live, where you are, it means to really, the opposite of eco-anxiety is ecophilia, okay? (laughs) Which is to really find out the beauty, discover the beauty, the 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 miracles, the mystery uh, of, of, of where you live, you know, Bean was talking about it going, you know, swimming at Weldon Pond, you know, I mean, there you go. And um, so we protect what we love. And it's, it's, it's so understandable. I mean, 70% of young people between 15 and 25 according to research that's been done by clover hogan and force for nature all over in 50 countries experience eco-anxiety and it makes sense i mean they've inherited a world and then they're being told by baby boomers that they're the last generation and you know that's their job to save the fate of the earth i mean Get out of here, you know. Mm. And <laughs> I
3: mean, I mean wow. it could be as easy as sort of, you know, just getting, when you say get to know your landscape, I mean, get to know your landscape in the sense that fall in love with it so you care about saving it. That's that's kind of the summary of what you're saying, correct?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, we protect what we love, and what we, what we need to do is stop thinking about it as something we can fix, you know, in the sense we're going to set up machines everywhere to, you know, suck carbon out of the air, you know, a very Bill Gatesian type of, you know, picture of the future to solve the problem and the problem is 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 not out there somewhere it's in who we are and how we live how we invest our money it's where we put our emphasis it's our cars we drive it's in everything we do because basically we've grown up in an an economy that's extractive It, it takes it takes life everything we buy from everything we uh, it, it, everything, every service we engage in, so forth, if you really pull back the curtain, it is taking life, it is degenerating. And so that's why I'm called the new book Regeneration, because the way the path forward is to regenerate life on earth. We're losing life on earth, and the path forward is to do so, to pivot that 180. And I think what the aspect or the prospect, and Lisa talked about this, of acting. Because stress, anxiety and stress, I mean, they're very related. It always maps back to stress, anxiety, as Lisa well knows and so forth. But stress is telling us to act and so forth. Mm -hmm. And what's so interesting about the work that Andrew Huberman is doing in Stanford um, about uh, stress and anxiety and action and how the brain works is that we believe that our beliefs change what we do. But in fact, action changes our beliefs and so the the path forward through eco anxiety is to act and your question is what to do what's the number one thing they can do and the number one thing they can do is is find out where they are where they are once they do that once they're in that modality of wanting to do something wanting to act there is a plethora of things they can do and one of the things that is the outcome of this latest book Regeneration, is a website that is the most complete uh uh listing and network of solutions climate solutions in the world but not just the listing of them but exactly how to do it and what I mean how like on all levels of agency like if you're an individual this is what you can do as an individual but we're not individuals that's kind of a myth you know that's the mm-hmm. ego talking to us every morning but we are all part of networks we're part of neighborhoods communities families, cities, we're part of companies, we're part of clubs, synagogues, churches, temples. All those are, are who we are. And when we act, we change our beliefs, but we change the beliefs of people around us. And so what regeneration has is like, what you can do on all those levels of agency, who you can influence, who in government, what are the good actors out there, what are the bad actors, what are the great videos, books, articles that you can read on degraded land restoration, for example, you know, or, you know, challenges like the the clear-cutting of the boreal forest to make plush toilet paper for Procter & Gamble, you know, really? The biggest stock of carbon in the world is being made into toilet paper. And so... Rather than being overwhelmed by these things and being mad, angry or depressed, you know, then what we're trying to do is give ways in which you can express yourself, especially, of course, if you're a young person and you're looking to head to you're looking at a future that it looks dark and foreboding rather than one that is positive. And so we're trying to change the thing from probabilities of what's going to happen, which is well-established in the science and well-proven out, uh, to the possibilities of uh, creating a future that is different rather than a future that we're stealing, which is what we're doing right now. We can economically, socially, culturally heal the future, and that can also be GDP. And that brings us to a world where we have employment that is meaningful, that is dignified, that is purposeful. So in a sense, there is no greater opportunity. And I go back to Lisa, you know, comments earlier that we are on the cusp of um, amazing possibilities in terms of the restoration of our society, of our culture, of our sense of being, of our sense of worth and who we are and why we're here in the first place.
3: Just the emotion in your voice is is leaving me hopeful. I can hear that you believe that we can do this. Uh, Bina, I want to turn to you. You talk about a moldable reality and you see climate change as a work in progress. How does that help you stay optimistic or or how do you stay optimistic?
5: Well, I want to be clear that I'm not an armchair optimist who looks around me at the world today and the forest burning or the floods that have uh, come through with Hurricane Ida and just believes that everything is inevitably marching towards progress or getting better. I certainly don't. Uh, I'm an active in the trenches uh, optimist in the sense that I believe that we can change the course and the trajectory of our society uh, if we take action. And that's what I mean by there being a moldable future, a moldable reality on this problem. And I think it's remem- it's important to remember, you know, in keeping with what Paul was just saying, that the The line of social and political progress, uh, it is not linear. Uh, There are ways in which there can be exponential, rapid change in societies when there is a tipping point reached in terms of political will, social and cultural change. And we are quite arguably reaching that point when it comes to this crisis and many other crises that we've been facing, whether you look at inequality or the pressures on democracy. And so when you look around you right now, Um, I think it can be hard for people in making this leap from anxiety to action to say, okay, I've got to be hopeful. How do I be hopeful? Uh, And maybe you don't see the evidence on the table for being hopeful. And so what I encourage people to do and what I write about in the Optimist Telescope is actually not about having hope, but about having imagination. And which is to say that we need to be able to imagine what it looks like to solve this problem. What does it look like to make our communities safer, cleaner, healthier? What does it look like to make our air easier to breathe or the oceans cleaner to swim in? How does that society look and how am I going to interact with other human beings in that society? Could it be better from a social justice point of view? Could it be a better community for my children or grandchildren to grow up in? And to start to populate your mind with the imagined future. And this is something that I studied in the context of uh, social movements, including the civil rights movement in the United States in the 1960s, and where there was a lot of evidence that things were really the worst they'd ever been. Violence between the races, crackdowns, uh, backlash to uh, progress in the streets or people getting marginally more uh, of the pie of our society. Uh, But it took people imagining what does society look like, how can society look better and relentlessly holding on to that vision of the future and then working to make that vision happen. So rather than asking people to have hope and take action based on some sort of hope that they don't feel genuinely, I try to ask people to imagine what a future could look like and to act towards making that imagined future possible. The other aspect of this that I think is really important and helps me maintain my optimism in the face of so much, uh, so much loss and so much um, really uh, disaster when it comes to climate change uh, particularly this past summer, is to remember that while it might not feel that impactful to recycle a plastic yogurt cup uh, or ride your bike to work, when you look at the colossal scale of the climate crisis, Uh, That we really are, as Paul said, uh, more than just individuals and our collective action has the power to do a lot more. And we sometimes underestimate this. So we think that taking an isolated action Uh, really isn't enough, Uh, but we know from looking at the behavioral economics behind this, uh, looking at Robert Frank's work, for example, on behavioral contagion, that we really can set into motion through our own actions when we share them, when we bring them into the community level, the neighborhood level, uh, the level of your workplace, uh, the level of your city we really can affect social norms, whether that uh, look at the way that now uh, smoking indoors is really frowned upon. Well, you know, a generation ago, that was not the case. So we have the ability to propel these kinds of rapid changes in society. If we start to think of ourselves as more than just isolated units, something that's a little bit hard in the midst of a pandemic where we've been largely isolated. Right. Uh, But when we look at each other as really existing as collectives and being able to have a lot more power and agency than our individual choices might suggest. And it's also, there's a great joy in that. There's a great joy in doing things with other people. I I like to think of it as like the Muppets saving the theater. What fun was that, right? This isn't just about trying to fight back the tide. It's about how we do that together. And uh, the process of doing that can be something that can actually build build your sense of optimism and build your sense of having an impact and having power and efficacy.
3: Well, that's kind of the perfect toss to a couple comments here. Julia writes, easy water conservation actions like saving my dishwashing water to water my plants. It isn't much, but I feel so much better when I do it. I know I feel that you mentioned tossing the yogurt container. You know, it may not be much, but I think about like if 7 billion of us do that, that's, that's a lot of yogurt containers that suddenly get, you know, recycled. And here, Deb writes, It's great that people's minds are changing, but I fear that a small group of extremely wealthy and powerful people have been and are arranging our political environment so that meaningful action will be impossible to take in time to minimize the destruction. That is, it's becoming harder for regular citizens' votes to make a difference. Paul, I'm curious if you can comment back to Deb.
0: Uh, I wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, I think that's a, that's a, that's a fair point. Uh, the Paris Agreement was signed one year after um, 2015 when the Conference of the Parties met in Paris. And so it was signed in 2016. This is 2021. During that time, uh, the banking industry led by uh, J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo and Bank of America uh, <clears throat> led lent and invested um uh, 3.6 trillion dollars into fossil fuel, okay, coal, gas, and oil, and the governments in developing countries subsidized those same companies to the tune of 3.3 trillion. So, since the Paris Agreement was signed, we put 6.9 trillion dollars uh, into fossil fuels. And so when you step back and you think about the actions and the initiatives that are ongoing, and <clears throat> there is amazing things happening in the world right now with small organizations and NGOs and initiatives, no question about it. And then you step back and look at the landscape and you see basically capital is basically out of control. In other words, our capital. And, you know, when if you have a credit card and you're charging it with one of those names and so forth, you're basically, you know, also destroying the earth and that's not your intention and so we put our money into banks basically to save for the future and our banks take the money and destroy the future and that's what's literally what's happening right now so this goes back to a, a bigger sense of collective or community than just the fact that a bunch of individuals collectively can do the same thing or influence each other it means we have to act in a political way as well of course and that means about voting absolutely, and in, in about fairness. Um, but we are right now dealing with a world that is corrupt. I mean, we can be we can dance around the word, you know, or, but the fact is most governments in the world are corrupt. And corrupt means that they're influenced more by money than people. And they don't actually serve the needs of their populace or the voters or the people who elected them. And so that will not change until you see that kind of tipping point that Bina talked about um, where it becomes untenable for politics to act in the way it is right now, which is to um, take the mandate of people and then go serve their masters, which is capital, which is money, which is the floor of capital. And so it's a very, very big problem, but at the same time, it doesn't stall, it doesn't forestall us or prevent us from acting now.
3: We have to act. We have to get louder so our politicians and our leaders will actually listen to us. Let's go to a caller here. uh, Divya from Fremont. Fremont, you're on the air.
6: Hi. um, I just wanted to ask, um, as a parent, how you would uh, recommend us to... uh guide our children because uh, our children also are facing this anxiety. They read a lot of the news online. Um, my daughter reading about the fires close to South Lake Tahoe where she often skis and uh, we go on holidays was weeping. And uh, I just didn't know uh, as a parent how it is that I can advise her on how she can help or, or contribute uh, to um yeah, to, to yeah, reducing the lots of climate change. Yeah, Lisa, quickly before the
3: break, yep. can you give okay. Divya some Great advice? Great question.
4: Great question, how to talk to kids. Listen, find out what uh, they are saying, uh, what they're hearing, then learn, ask them what it is that they know about conditions, and then leverage what they tell you and say, That's why we are doing whatever eco uh, pro social activity or what because they've brought this to your attention, you will do those and of course it has to be age appropriate, but these are three key interventions listen learn leverage. Listen, learn, leverage. We'll
3: we'll talk a lot more about climate anxiety and what you can do about those feelings with Bina Venkatraman. She's the editorial page editor for the Boston Globe. Paul Hawken, he's an environmentalist and a forthcoming book, Regeneration. It's coming out on September 14th. And Dr. Le- Lisa Van Susteren, she's the founding member of the Climate Psychiatry Alliance. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We're talking about climate anxiety or eco-anxiety and what you can do with those feelings. And now we're joined with Dr. Krithi. She's the founder of Boundless in Motion. It's a nonprofit that uses Zen meditation to cope with climate grief. She's also a senior scientist with the Environmental Defense Fund. So, Dr. Krithi, I would love to hear from you because I personally have noticed a pretty deep desire to connect with something kind of larger than myself recently. I'm not traditionally religious, but I find myself looking beyond myself and definitely beyond humanity for some kind of direction in this moment. So tell us, how can a spiritual practice or or meditation be helpful right now?
6: Thank you so much, Leslie. That's a very deep, wonderful question. Uh, And you put it beautifully. We feel, I feel as a climate scientist, as a human being, lost in these times, right? These fires and floods and people, beloved people getting hurt. Uh, We need, uh, I, I wouldn't have used this word if you hadn't posed the question the way you posed it. We need the mystery, the universe, the gods, the angels to support us, right? To the extent we think there is a realm like that, which can hear our cries, uh, we need to tap into that force. And in Buddhism, which is my root tradition now, I was born in a Hindu family but I've been practicing Buddhism and a priest in Buddhist tradition of Zen, uh, there, is, there is this deep uh, that the framework is that there is something deeper than our human small egotistical selves that that might be rooting for us, actually, right? Mm -hmm. And how do you tap into it? How do we get beyond our own fight, flight, and freeze reactions to these calamities, right? When fires and droughts happen, anxiety rises. Uh, You can have the PTSD response that Liz was talking about. And one step, of course, is that we get together with Uh, skillful therapists like Lise and others, we can create a safe container, we begin to see we are in fight and flight, and we release our anxieties, our stresses, our traumas as grief, right? Tears and movements and sounds, they help us release this. So that's just the human level of dealing with climate anxiety or climate grief. But what you are asking here is, how do we tap into the subconscious and the unconscious? What Carl Jung talked about, right? Where the great mystics of the world talked about, if we if we can surrender our human responses enough, deeply enough, and tap into the mystery, what can happen? Uh, I hope it makes some sense. I can go more. No, I think that's I think that's beautiful.
3: Like it's just, yeah, I think that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for some way to find some kind of energy beyond myself in this plane to kind of fuel fuel me forward. I'm curious, how does your meditation I mean, you're also a scientist. So how does your meditation practice help you as a scientist? How do you bring it back down to Earth?
6: Well, so I work with some of the poorest farmers in India, right? Uh, The the food belt in Asia. And I see them suffering uh, impacts of droughts and floods. And I can see the future. The data tells us clearly if I was not doing my meditation and my own grief work, I'm also a grief ritual leader for the communities. I'm trained with Joanna Macy and my grief ritual teacher, Uh, the unassuming Beth Garigas. If I did not do both of those things, I would have quit my job by now. It is so depressing, right? Uh, Several of my colleagues have panic attacks at night. Just last week, one of my dearest friends left her work. It was like, I can no longer take the news. I can no longer be dealing with climate crisis all the time. When I meditate, when I do my grief work, It is like unloading my nervous system. I unload my nervous system of my own fight, flight, and freeze responses. I can rest. I can rest in a deeper place. And there is creativity and courage there. I've gotten some of my best ideas about climate science while being on the meditation cushion, right? Not always. Not every meditation session is like, whoa. (laughs) Here, I'm going to solve the problem. (laughs) Right. But but the clarity, but the clarity, I can keep going. I got something bigger than my small human egotistical mind to support me. And that is unmistakable.
3: Right. Absolutely. I mean, I've done some work with Joanne Macy as well. And what surprised me by doing a weekend with her. So this was, you know, we're all in a big conference hall and we're processing. She takes you kind of on all these kind of rituals and activities to process this grief. Is I was struck by how much grief I was carrying. I had no idea how many tears I was going to gonna shed that weekend about the climate. You know, it's not in the, my front consciousness most of the time. So I'm curious, can you kind of describe what, what am I talking about here? What is a climate grief circle and, and what happens there?
6: So I'll, I'll, I'll say what happens there. First, first thing, which is what also happens in a good skilled psychotherapist's office, is you go and you want to feel safe. Any com- if you do it one-on-one or you do it as a community, you create a container where people feel safe. It's like you're not going to be attacked for being vulnerable and showing your emotions. After the trust-building part of these circles that's when you can begin to speak your truth. And a typical ritual that I lead is literally you can translate it as speaking our truth circle, right? Or I in brief call it grief circle because I see grief as an underlying emotion behind our anger and our fear and our confusion. Is it either grief of things already that that have already happened or anticipatory grief. What happens then is that you, create, you, you invite people one by one to come into the middle of the sharing circle. And there are these ritual objects in the middle, one symbolizing grief, one symbolizing anger, fear, and a sense of being lost. And people pick up these objects and then they speak about their pain, right? Joanna Macy says our pain for the world. Mm-hmm. And I just, as you said, if the container is safe enough, right, people tap into their deepest emotions. And that is like a precious gift. I tell people I take pride in making people cry. Because when they cry, as Paul was hinting and Lise was saying, and also Bina, when you realize how much grief you have about something, you also see how much you love that very thing. And then you can take the more radical action, which goes beyond our individual recycling and such, right? I've had people in my meditation group join the stop line three movement, and three young folks who had never taken actions before stopped the pipeline construction for 48 hours just because they were able to tap into their climate grief. They resisted that corporation, right? Mm-hmm. They they stayed locked to their equipment there and stopped the construction for 48 hours. They would not have done it if they did not tap into their grief and knew how much they care about this issue.
3: Beautiful. Well, I want to hear from listeners, how are you feeling about the state of climate change and what helps you stay positive? Have you funneled your anxiety into actions like we just heard about? Give us a call now at 1-866-733-6786. That's 1-866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter or on Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Holly writes, Even those in liberal cities like mine in San Francisco, there are people who think they're on the side of good by shopping at Whole Foods and the Grove Collective, but they pay zero actual attention to their environmental impact and do nothing to ameliorate, excuse me, to stop it. (laughs) That word is tough for me to say. They still drive SUVs. They consume and throw out plastic like crazy We need regenerative design products, services, and policies that are no-brainers. Regeneration has to be built into everything because most people will always opt for convenience or anything that takes thought or effort. Paul, given you just wrote a book called Regeneration, you want to take that comment?
0: Yeah, um, we all see that. Um, And we also see it amongst, again, I, I privileged people, you know, feel like they deserve everything they have and that they can <laughs> be cavalier almost, you know, without realizing that is what they're being, you know, in, sort of insensitive to the plight of the world. This has to do with ignorance, frankly. I mean, they don't understand. They don't see their place. They don't see the connection. They don't see... How everything is connected, you know, which is like a cliche, but it's absolutely true. Um, and uh, rather than, uh, sorry, rather than um, mm, condemn them, put it that way. I feel like one of the really important aspects of regeneration uh, is is listening and listening to others and listening to other. Um, ways of understanding the world that people have that are not the same as ours and that depends on conversations and so forth and openness rather than being right it's really easy to be right about this situation and the science is there the weather's there the impacts are there Um, but in order for us to really come together which is what is needed to create community, we also need to be able to listen to points of view politically, socially, culturally, or just out of ignorance that are counter to our own. Um, and, and I feel like when people act that way with their big cars and their throwaway lifestyle, whatever it may be, or, <laughs> um, the fact is that they are actually uh, acting out of their own type of despair. I don't believe they're happy, not for a minute. And uh, uh, I'm not judging them for that, I'm not assuming that, but I'm just saying is that that's just, that kind of compulsive behavior is actually a sign of loss, a sign of loss of identity, of belonging, a sense of being somebody, uh, 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 being on a life that has purpose. And I just think, you know, going back to what everybody said today, I mean, what is being offered here is a gift. Uh, the, you know, you know, like I said, mother earth, you know, is like we're being homeschooled <laughs> by this beautiful, beautiful planet, you know, and what it offers us is not only lessons, like I said, nature doesn't make any mistakes. Only we do that. And um, is a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives. And if we generating the world and restoring life as we know it for, for children, Um, for creatures, for the future, um, for the beauty of it, uh, for the wonder of it, isn't meaningful, then I don't know what is, you know. And so uh, there's two ways to look at this, you know, the darkness that's coming and it's foreboding and anxiety promoting, of course. At the same time, there is almost a hand out there, like offering to us, um a possibility of of a change, you know, the thing that Bina talked about, you know a tipping point, almost a sea change. And they do happen like a murmuration of starlings or flocks of birds. all of a sudden they all go in a different direction. And humanity does that too every once in a while. If this isn't every once in a while, I don't know what it would be.
3: Absolutely. You're listening to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg in for Mina Kim. I'd like to go to a caller Kim in Fairfield, you're on the air.
2: Hi. Um, I want to say that I agree with everything that everybody previous to me has already said about our environment. Um, My family um, had a little flower farm where we were selling to San Francisco Home market. And when COVID hit, um, we were kind of at a loss to what to do. So we put up a chalkboard sign and uh let people walk our property where all of our spring flowers were blooming and we noticed a couple of things that COVID has taught us which is that people need nature they need to be able to walk around to see the beauty of nature in order to get relief from things that humanity has created and that humanity has created on itself um and COVID has also taught us that Humans cannot live in spaceships. Uh, we could barely stay in our own houses for almost a year. So uh, the space we doing was kind of, sort of all for show, and, in my personal opinion, very selfish. Um, another thing that's um, going on in terms of uh, the environment, growing up as a kid, my dad used to take me to tide pools, and it was kind of like Rafiki with Simba going, no, look harder into the tide pools. And from there, I've always realized that um, ecosystems which help uh, eliminate the burdens that we have today are based on the small things that you can't see. It's the bacteria, it's the tiny microbes, it's the millions and millions of species of tiny creatures that live and die so quickly that we'll never know and understand nor see them if we don't pause to take a look. And the same goes with the soil uh, and the environment. And what I'm thinking from me studying um, a little bit as a hobby in terms of um, the ocean and tide pools is that when it comes to these microclimates being devastated by heat and by dryness, I do believe that there is a high probability that we've lost a lot of the microbes uh, that keep the soil moist, to keep the soil nutritious. And because of the heat uh, and
3: in a I way, mean, um, I know this is jumping around, but uh, I, I think yeah, Kim, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go. I just want to I want to point out with well, a thing that I'm hearing so deeply in what you're saying though is that what Paul was speaking to is that you're paying attention to the world that is close to you. You're paying attention to the tide pools, to the soil in your garden, and and it kind of speaks pretty loudly, Paul, to to what you've been talking about in terms of paying attention to the world that's just right outside, so that we can then care about it and and hopefully then act on it. I think what I would love to hear from each of you is something I'd love to end um, on, a, on a pretty positive note here. And, and that is, what is something that is really inspiring that each of you, and, and Lisa, I'll start with you, that is happening in the world right now, that leaves you with a sense of hope that, that we can weather this storm?
4: I guess I would put as the chapter heading, uh, when the people lead, the leaders will follow. So if we do what we are supposed to do, and it isn't to downplay what corporations, a few handful, especially fossil fuel corporations are doing to us, but I do believe that if we are active personally, professionally, wherever we find ourselves and politically, that we will have the kind of leadership and that may include that we end gerrymandering and that we stop this uh, corrupt practice of quid pro quos for votes. Uh, That when we do that, we will have the kind of leadership so that we will have the policies that restore uh, our connection, our interconnection with nature, recognizing that we are products of nature and that we have been sort of like teenagers breaking all the rules Uh, and expecting a different outcome, that we see in what ways our reconnection, restoration to all of the bounty of nature will uh, allow us to return to a safe path. And seeing how many people are doing that is what restores or or gives me optimism.
3: Beautiful, Lisa. I just want to give everyone, we have about 30 seconds for each person. So Krithi, uh, what gives you hope right now?
6: These young people who, in my view, are creating islands of sanity in a sea of chaos, Uh, and I see that in two ways. One is how actively they are resisting the structures that are entrenched in fossil fuel, neoliberal capitalism, and number two, how they are building the alternatives where you are able to work with what Paul said place-based networks and communities and small teams of people who get each other, who get each other's grief and are just taking radical actions that match the scale of what is needed, right?
0: Okay. Maybe one sentence to
3: Paul and one sentence to Bina. Paul.
0: Uh, This is a poly crisis. And what gives me hope is the polylateral non-state actors all around the world that are coming together. And we see this in the Red Cross and Doctors Without Borders, Landmines Treaty. And we're seeing the climate movement become the biggest movement in the history of humanity.
5: Bina? I'm inspired by intergenerational action and intergenerational collaboration, from young people working on city councils to
3: the old becoming better ancestors. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg in for Mina Kim. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.
4: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.